Welcome to the NutraCast, a production by Nutra Ingredients USA. I'm Danielle Masterson. Thank you for joining me here on the NutraCast, where we talk and share insights from inside the nutrition industry. From time to time, you might come across a constituent that is both a dietary ingredient and a drug ingredient. Attorney Bob Durkin, who specializes in FDA law at Arnold Golden Gregory LLP, says clients are curious about the prospects of studying an ingredient in both categories in order to save time and money. However, that race to market could cost companies the ingredients inclusion altogether. Attorney Bob Durkin joins us now from Washington, D.C. to explain. Welcome to the NutriCast, Bob. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So I briefly hit on that point, but can you explain why companies want to research ingredients for both drugs and supplements? Sure. I mean, we're seeing greater and greater sophistication. The ingredients are more sophisticated and the clients themselves are more sophisticated where they're they're really digging into the science behind the ingredient. And it's not hard to imagine that a, a lot of dietary ingredients sourced from nature also have properties, you know, ideal as a drug candidate, a drug development candidate. And so for those who don't know, why should companies avoid doing this? Well, they shouldn't necessarily avoid doing it. What they should do is make sure they do things in the right order. There are two separate provisions of the Act, uh, 301LL and 201FF3B, that taken together work to exclude from being added to food or from the definition of a dietary supplement, an article that was either an approved drug or studied in certain ways to be an approved drug before it was introduced into commerce as a food or a dietary supplement. So it's not that you know, interested folks out there shouldn't explore the, you know, the monetization opportunities of an ingredient. They just need to be careful that they do it in a way that doesn't exclude all the possibilities of that monetization. Mm-hmm. I feel like supplement companies know this already, or a lot of them do at least. So is this mostly pharma companies that are trying to cash in on maybe the pill fatigue out there? It could be both. I mean, a lot of the more sophisticated dietary supplement companies are very much aware of how 201FF3B and 301LL operate, but that's not the entirety of our space. There are a lot of folks out there, a lot of companies that aren't quite as sophisticated. A lot of times people that find themselves in that position are at least sophisticated enough to know to reach out for some guidance. But unfortunately, from time to time, we come across individuals who didn't. And uh, although they were, were capable and sophisticated enough to obtain an IND, didn't realize that doing so and then having studies conducted under it could possibly exclude them from being added to a food or a dietary supplement. Is that common? Does that happen pretty often or... You know, it's happened in the past. There are some very, you know, significant examples, Biostratum with pyridoxamine, Pharmanex with red yeast rice. It is happening more and more. So one ingredient that does come to mind is fish oil. I know that is something that is in both dietary supplements and pharmaceuticals. How did they get around this? So essentially what, uh, you know, when the new dietary ingredient notifications or even some of the ODIs that are in the market happened, they were able to establish that the active moiety or the active ingredient, the the ODI itself, was on the market prior to the date of any of the INDs that that were used to study, you know, any of those omega-3s as as drugs. And it's interesting you say that because some of the cases that help shape the way FDA approaches the exclusionary clauses, uh, one of those does include uh, an Ameren case about the new chemical exclusivity status of uh, Ameren's drug Vesepa. So that's that's a pretty good example. Okay. I'm just also thinking about 
other ingredients. Uh, one that definitely comes to mind that's really been trending the last couple of years, CBD. It's not considered a legal dietary supplement or food ingredient yet. I, I do believe it's on its way, or at least it appears that it is. Uh, what does this situation mean for CBD? You know, it's interesting what it, what it means for CBD. First, you know, it's, it's 301LL and 201FF3B that do exclude CBD from being added to a food or included in a product that's labeled as a dietary supplement. And uh, the agency does this by relying on the, the effective date of the IND for GW Pharma's drug Epidiolex. Epidiolex is a high purity CBD drug that's marketed for seizures in children. You know, when the farm bill became law back in 2018, a lot of folks did see CBD coming. I don't think uh, a lot of folks knew how big it would be or the magnitude uh, to which it would move the space. You know, it is interesting. It's almost as though the use of, of Epidiolex's IND to exclude CBD from being in a food or dietary supplement may have gained a little more, a little more traction than it should have. And I, I think it might be being relied on now to exclude other naturally derived extracts that contain CBD from being included in a food or a dietary supplement. That seems like it might be a, an overly broad application of the statute by the agency. Okay. So when you say overly broad, are you referring to things like full spectrum? I am. Yes, actually I am. Uh, if, if you work your way through 201FF3 and, and 301LL, they're, they're similar in a large part. You know, both of them can exclude an article if it's been approved as a drug. That's pretty simple. The second way they can work to exclude an article is if the article is authorized for investigation, if there were substantial investigations instituted for the article, and if those substantial investigations have been made public. What's interesting here is that there's a few things to mention. First off is you know, authorized for investigation. The agency has taken that to mean the effective date of an IND. INDs are never actually authorized by the agency. They simply become effective. But yet, you know, FDA has taken authorized as used in the statute to mean the effective date of an IND. Substantial investigations, FDA has taken that to mean clinical studies that are done for an IND. What's interesting about this is you could have a situation where there's an effective date for an IND before there are studies even begun to be conducted or published. Someone could go to market, be diligent, check and make sure that they're, they're doing the right thing, go to market with an ingredient that is being studied on that IND, be on market for some period of time, maybe years. Then those studies become published and all of a sudden someone has an ingredient that's excluded even though they've done nothing wrong. It seems a little less than equitable, especially when you consider, first off, why the agencies decided to rely on the effective date of an IND to satisfy the word authorized in the statute, but also that there's no way for the typical person to look up at it, whether there's an IND for an ingredient. To my knowledge, the only way to know that is when studies become published. So it just seems like a very unfair or strange way to, to apply uh, the statute. Also, with the word article, you mentioned uh, Amron before, and there's some other cases that, that help define what's meant by article. And uh, we, we touched on it just a little bit earlier that it, right now, FDA is relying on an IND for a you know, high-purity CBD-containing product to exclude products that happen to contain CBD among many components, such as broader full-spectrum extracts. And you know, that's troubling. What about CBN, CBG, the other minor cannabinoids that we don't hear as much about? Sure. So that's a great example. A great question. You, you could wind up with a broad spectrum extract that's made up of a half dozen cannabinoids, one of which is CBD. 
to make the math easy, maybe it only contains 20% CBD and 20% of the other four cannabinoids. Yet there's a school of thought out there that the IND for high purity CBD epidiolex should or could be used to exclude our example broad spectrum extract from being added to a food or in a dietary supplement. Wow, this is so fascinating, but it also just seems so backward the way the law is written out. It is. And ODSP announced about a year and a half ago that they were going to you know, move forward with this, this age of innovation. They were going to figure out a smarter way to regulate, a safer way to regulate dietary supplements. You know, there, there, there might have been some innovations and certainly COVID did put folks back, but this is certainly an area where there could stand to be some, some improvements made. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you would know you were the director of the Office of Dietary Supplement Programs for- I was the acting director for a little while, and then Steve Tave came on board, and I was more than happy to settle into my permanent job as his uh, permanent deputy. So I was the deputy director of ODSP. Gotcha. And and speaking of the FDA, they recently sent out, uh, I think, seven warning letters to NAC distributors- You know, that's an ingredient that's been on the market for a while. I wasn't aware of any signal that it was a safety risk, that it was causing harm. You know, the agency sometimes moves in mysterious ways. Why they decided now was the right time to to include, you know, NAC and warning letters is anyone's guess. It'd be interesting to see if the agency would actually choose to pursue elevated enforcement options. If someone were to not take corrective measures relative to the warning letter and continue to market NAC, uh, would the agency actually go as far as to try to seize it or, or even more? It just seems like a peculiar way to try to, uh, to maybe use limited agency resources during COVID. And while there are so many other blatantly violative products on the market, why NAC? Why now? Why not other things that might actually be hurting people? Yeah, I think you said it best. They move in mysterious ways because, I mean, NAC has been marketed in dietary supplements for decades. So why now? It's very curious. I agree. And then I believe this NAC case also raises some more broader issues regarding the new dietary ingredient portion of Deshay. How do you interpret the NDI provision? And and do you think it can be used retroactively? You know, I guess it depends on what you say by retroactively. The the NDI provision is really the agency's only chance to to get a pre-market safety review of dietary supplements or new dietary ingredients before they go to market. I think I would support it if it was being done for a safety concern. Uh, I don't know if it makes much sense for the agency to use it just arbitrarily or capriciously when they decide to. You know, it was pretty clear the, the public meeting uh, May 15th of 2020, Steve Tave did some back of the napkin math and, and decided, you know, it's possible there are four or 5,000 uh, at a minimum violative new dietary ingredients on the market. You know, the, the horse is out of the barn. It's going to be hard to figure out a way to make a lot of those products now. A lot of those those folks who are putting those products into commerce come in and get the NDIN that they, they should have submitted in the first place. I, I think it, it could be used retroactively, but, you know, where do you start? Where do you stop? Why do you choose which ingredients you would go after? Mm-hmm. I think it has to be risk-based. Yeah, it's quite a can of worms. Does NAC pose any type of risk that you know of? Anything can be dangerous. I mean, safety, it's, it's hard to speak about safety as an absolute, but if, if that was the case, why did FDA wait till now? Right. Um, why didn't they move sooner? And if there is a safety risk, they could have always made an adulteration charge to, to mm-hmm. move on 402F to, uh, if they thought they were dangerous to move them from the market. So it's just that the timing is strange and the, the way they've approached it is strange. 
So I guess we'll just have to wait to see how that uh, pans out. Any predictions for what to expect from the FDA in terms of that and, and other trends that we're seeing, especially in the midst of COVID? Sure. You know, you have COVID, you're going to have an administration change here soon. It's no secret that the Trump administration was was very deliberate when they allowed agencies or, or facilitated agencies putting out regulations or guidance documents. I think it's probably likely that there are a lot of draft guidance documents and uh, proposed regulations that are in the wings waiting to be used. I would be very surprised if we don't see something relatively soon to try to address the NDINs that are on the market and shouldn't be. I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see soon, you know, FDA maybe going to final with portions of the draft guidance. Uh, they, they might try to go in there and pick out some of the less controversial portions of the guidance and, and go to final with those, which is fine. But the problem there is the parts that are controversial are probably the parts that we need guidance on more than anything. But progress, you know, you take it when you get it. I, I would expect that to happen sometime soon. Uh, you know, enforcement policy, I, I don't know if that'll change. You know, compliance at FDA, it's, it's driven by folks that are career professionals at the agency. They take safety very seriously. Uh, I would never think that, you know, compliance actions when safety is a concern has ever been anything but consistent at the agency, uh, regardless of, of the administration. Mm-hmm. So I think they'll keep doing the, the good job they do there. Yeah, and we talk about the Biden administration, but a lot of this really comes down to the makeup of the House and the Senate. What are you hoping to see in the coming year or two? You know, I guess it depends on how it shakes out, who keeps the majority in the Senate, and if the majority is reduced further in the House. There's a lot of active lobbying going on right now for issues. You know, one of them is uh, where health savings accounts and such could be used to pay for dietary supplements as they can be used right now for OTCs. I think that would be uh, largely empowering for consumers. It would allow them to make choices about how to manage their own health and their well-being. I think that's come close a few times in the past, and I'm hopeful that wherever we wind up in the legislature, that that'll get traction and happen. And before I let you go, any tips for companies out there who are looking into possibly market a product or an ingredient? You know, if if you're excited about your product, if you're excited about your ingredient, if you think you have an approach to the market that's innovative or new, you very well might. And that brings with it the responsibility to, uh, to make sure that you're entering the market the right way, that you're securing your rights now and your rights in the future. People go into commerce to make money. There's nothing wrong with that. That's that's not dirty. That's not wrong to do. So as you're doing that, just make sure that you preserve all of your opportunities to monetize your current investments down the road. Everything from making sure that you position yourself correctly from a regulatory perspective to your corporate and business structures to um, your intellectual property dossier. Make, make sure that you've protected yourself all around. Spoken like a true attorney, Bob Durkin. Thank you so much for joining the NutriCast today. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. If you like what you just heard, you can subscribe to the NutriCast on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can also head to NutraIngredients-USA.com for even more Nutra-related content. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Danielle Masterson. As always, I'll catch you here on the NutriCast next week.